This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is my co-host, and your worst nightmare. It's Hank. Is that a Cobra reference? No, that's a that's a Rambo reference. But also just a reference on dreams in general, Hank. You drew first blood. Uh, I don't know. Hey, remember back in the day when I used to advocate something at the beginning of every episode? Yeah, I don't remember much about any of these episodes. I'm sorry. <laughs> Most of them just go woo, right out one ear and the other. Yeah, it's not like I have anything to advocate. I was just remembering. So, welcome to Death by DVD. It's a double feature episode. And the one thing that ties these two movies together is the fact that at any capacity, Randy Quaid should have been in them. <laughs> well, that's there's probably a, a, probably a stronger... Um, connective tissue than just the lack of Randy Quaid, because almost any movie could be considered a lacking of Randy Quaid, except for Independence Day. Too much Randy Quaid. I'll give you that one. But really, it doesn't matter what role or what capacity. More Randy Quaid is would I mean Titanic, Billy Zane, pfft, Randy Quaid. Fuck it, Kathy Bates, throw her off. He could have been the unsinkable Molly Brown, Randy Quaid. It, he's. And I don't know what he's doing now. I probably shouldn't say this. He's probably some fucking right wing lunatic, and I'm advocating. He is. Oh, I wouldn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's, <gone nuts. laughs> he's completely lost his shit. Right, so Dennis Quaid, on the other hand, hopefully, uh, is is one of them liberal Hollywood elites, and we can maybe talk about him because unfortunately, I think we might be forced to at some point tonight. Well, we haven't really done a double feature episode in quite a while, and. I just thought about bringing it back from the past since uh, it's been kind of irregular episodes as of late. We put it out an episode a week, but it hasn't been like kind of the, the core Death by DVD episodes. Yeah, I'm sure uh, at this point the audience is just so happy and can have a sigh of relief. Like, oh, it's not that asshole Hank talking for another 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah, we did for our 11th birthday uh, a Q&A, which uh, I'm not doing that ever again alone. I, I don't... <laughs> I'll, I'll get anyone else to guest host. I don't care. I'll bring in my mom just to have anybody to do this because that was brutal and it was not fun. I did answer some questions upon your behalf. Seriously, I didn't say uh, like I. One of the questions was, "What's your favorite movie?" And I said, uh, "Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross," and one of them is three films: the Dead trilogy. I think that's correct. Is Glenn Gary? You said Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is one of my favorites. I love that movie. I wouldn't call it one of my favorites, though. I always associate it as one of your favorites. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just because you really like uh, Alan Alda's not in that, is he? Yeah, I don't know. Alan, no, Alan Alda's not in that. Alan Al Arkin is in it. I'm sorry. Alan Arkin, yes. Yeah, I always thought you had an uh, an officiation, a love for Alan Arkin, and maybe Alan Alda. I don't know. I do like some Alan Arkin. Uh, I especially like him as a Mexican in Freebie and the Bean. That's interesting anyway 
Well, it's it's been a while since we've done a double feature episode, so let's bring this one back from the past. What was the last one we did? Was it the uh, the bug, the conversation episode? That mm, probably is it. I guess I could bring up the old website and check it out, which um, everyone can check out and find. All episodes are always uploaded first at deathbydvd.transistor.fm. I can't remember the actual address, so that's always going to be up to Hank. I don't know why I'm fucking plugging it, because if people are listening to this, they obviously they have some. It somewhere. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's just, you know, filler. I'm sorry. We've not done this in a few weeks. It's just been me. And uh, uh, So, okay, we technically did the, the Blade Runner series is a, a double feature, kind of. We did that. Yeah, but that's a sequel in the original. This is like pairing two similar style movies together and actually doing like a kind of a drive-in double feature because now that it's the age of COVID drive-ins have made a huge comeback and there's been a like evil dead. I drink your blood. Drive-in Massacre double feature going around. style is playing in theaters, drive-in theaters. It's amazing. Uh, Jurassic Park and Jaws, I think, is doing a double feature on the circuit right now. In February, we did Sometimes Killer Hippies Can Be Good or Bad, But Mostly Bad, which was Three from Hell and I Drink Your Blood Disgust. That's kind of... Yeah, it was kind of a double feature. But this is a double feature where they have something in common. They're not inexplicably linked by any means, but they are tonally very similar, and they kind of deal with similar themes. And the first movie we'll be talking about is... a movie that I think is a goddamn crime that not enough people have seen. It kind of disappeared from the ethos after it came out in 1984. Um, it's a movie called Dreamscape, directed by uh, Joseph Rubin, who uh, is probably most famous for directing The Stepfather and I think Sleeping with the Enemy, a couple other things. But I always equate him with director of The Stepfather. And Chuck Russell, I think, was the, one of the writers on Dreamscape, actually, and producers. Yes, uh, this is one of those things, you know, just as you had mentioned, it was lost. It's a shame not a lot of people had seen it. I'd never heard of Dreamscape. I had never seen it. So when you threw it at me, I mean, you threw this idea at me. Uh, I loved this movie when I was a kid. I used to rent it all the time, and nobody has fucking seen it, and it's fucking amazing. It really, it's one of those films that I could see doing a remake of that won't completely, I mean, depending on who you hire and, you know, ideas like that, but it's something that's ripe for a remake. It could be very easily remade up the ante on it, add a lot more Snake Man, and you got yourself a multi-million dollar property. Dreamscape. And when you recommended this for the show, all that it took to sink me was looking up the cast. And you've got Eddie Albert as the President of the United States. That alone was fantastic. David Patrick Kelly, Max von Sydow, and Christopher Plummer. Dennis Quaid wasn't even um, you know, one of the catches for me. The only thing that might have made this a little bit cooler would have been uh, Randy Quaid as the Tommy Ray Glattman character. Somebody else was offered the role. Oh, Kevin Costner was offered the role for that, and he didn't want to be, uh, you know, not the leading character. So it went to David Patrick Kelly. What a hard left turn from Kevin Costner. Yeah, but a very appropriate left turn. Oh, he's one of the key elements of this movie that makes it so great is his performance of being this kind of spoiled little brat who's possibly abused by his father at some point has turned him into this kind of rage-filled murder monster. Well, I had a theory about that, too, that maybe uh, Bob Blair's character led him to kill his father to see if he was appropriate for the program, but I don't know. There's None of this is That's in the possible, movie. too. I just always assumed it was some sort of abusive relationship with the uh, the parent. 
Well, once you get to the end with the Snake Man thing, he says he's sorry to his dad. So I don't know if it was his abuser. Why I work? Okay, this <laughs> we've gotten deep into uh, into uh, into weird semantics. I guess we'll eventually have to deal with. But, yeah, but I guess we probably need to talk about the plot because I, again, I mean, a lot of people have seen this. It's kind of disappeared over the years. But one of the things that gets me with uh, just the casting is I mentioned this to you the other night with David Patrick Kelly. It's a shame he never actually gets to play uh, nice characters because he's really good at everything generally. Like uh, Twin what about Peaks? Twin Peaks? the return yeah that's what i was about to say his performance in twin Peaks season three is is amazing and i don't know how, how much of it was acting or that's just david patrick <laughs> kelly but um god he was in that uh that remake of the man with no name or no it was the remake of yojimbo for uh i don't remember who did that it's got michael imperioli bruce willis in it last man standing Oh, that thing. Yeah. I've never actually sat down and watched Walter Hill's Last Man Standing. It's, well, yeah, Walter Hill. I couldn't think of who did it. I kept thinking Sam Peckinpah. I was like, it's way the fuck off, like, by 30 years. That was about the age when I actually learned to start saying no to movies and go, I just don't think I'm interested in this. I'm not there yet. I, I still, like an asshole, sit down and, and waste so much time like I'm doing, uh, as we should be talking about, Dreamscape. But the general premise of Dreamscape is a federally funded program through a university where it takes people who have ESP powers and uses them to be able to, and uses this machine to take these people with ESP to enter into other people's dreams. And it's Max von Sydow is the head of this program. He finds this, I, I guess you would call him, you call him psychic? I don't know. What what would you call him? Because someone with ESP, what would you call that? I don't know. I just would go with psychic. I think that was. Let's just go with psychic. Fuck it. <laughs> I think that's even kind of what they referred to it as in the movie. I mean, it's it's not really thinly veiled, but it's kind of. I mean, it's not like the X Men. Like they've gone to that special school to wield their powers, but they've been gathered through bending spoons and guessing colors on many various tests. It seems very elaborate because even Dennis Quaid's character, Alex, makes a reference to Max von Sydow that he doesn't want to spend months with electrodes attached to his ass and just doesn't feel like dealing with it. So they, there's some there's some science behind figuring out that they're psychic, I guess. Yeah, psychic. Let's just say psychic. But um, the program is to you know try to help people work through their, their dream problems. But in actuality, the funding is coming from a government agency, the CIA, held, held basically by um, Christopher Plummer, and they're going to use these people with uh, ESP to enter into people's dreams and assassinate them by stopping their hearts, by giving them nightmares, and by like you know trying to control their dreams. These kind of, uh, I, don't, well, I guess, dream assassins is the best thing you could describe yeah. them as. I mean, that's uh, uh, with really great casting. Christopher Plummer always has excellence in playing a bastard. But that's, he's a great dick. Yeah, I mean, he's really just training. So there's, uh, I'm just paraphrasing here, but he's explaining to Alex after they kill George Went. Spoilers, ladies and gentlemen. Spoilers. Uh, George Went is in this movie, and now you know he dies in it. I'm, <laughs> I'm so sorry. So he's explaining to Alex's character uh, the heinous nature of the corporation, and he pretty much says, you know, imagine being able to have an enemy and send somebody into their dreams, and you die in the dream. It stops your heart. And uh, he says something really wicked, like, you know, uh, Tommy had a dream dagger when he killed the lady and she went into cardiac arrest. But essentially they're training people with the idea that you can assassinate them in their dreams, but the biggest problem here is the president is actually a, a reasonable president, and he has been 
haunted by these dreams of uh, riding on a trolley through an absolute wasteland of America that's been devastated by nuclear war, and he's haunted by the crying voices of young children and the dead American public, and he realizes, you know, we've got to do something about this. This movie was made in the 80s, still when the Cold War was going on, so it's a, it's a big Russian theme, and he's going to have this meeting at the Geneva Convention or the Geneva Nuclear Arms Convention or something, and pretty much... Uh, draw peace with the Russians and in the Cold War and, and end this uh, constant threat of nuclear devastation because he's very certain his dreams actually have a meaning. So Christopher Plummer, who is a capitalist, uh, does not want that to happen. So they're training Tommy Ray Glattman to assassinate the president in his dreams. Uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's like a little Robert A. Heinlein, kind of. I mean, there's some, there's some cool... But it's a hell of a premise, though. Yeah, I mean, it really is. That. It's a great premise for a movie. That's why I think it's so ripe for a remake. Um... And like with Chuck Russell going on from this to go into Nightmare Three, that should explain some something about like the the nature of dreams and the nature of nightmares. And who would you cast kind in of a remake? I mean, it can't be like Dwayne Johnson. It, I mean, this has to be like they did the Total Recall remake with fucking Colin Farrell. Not that I have any problems with him as an actor; it was just awful casting. But this is something that really you'd have to take some really uh, particular casting to get this right. I mean, Christopher Plummer, Max von Sydow, even Eddie Albert, like there's just some of these performances are irreplaceable. I think it would, if it was remade, they would completely change the script. They would use the concept and probably not go into a lot of the places they ended up going to in this film. Avoid some um, of that dream rape. Well, they, Oh God, the, the weird, uh, <laughs> yes. When he, uh, Dream rates Kate Capshaw, and she says, "Well, you know what? I was kind of into it." Yeah, they, that's they, not a problem. They for cross me. their T's and dot their eyes with this movie. <laughs> you know, it's not as bad as it could be. But you're left with a big question at the end of the film: of like, was the lead character a rapist and and murderer? I kinda, I think so, maybe. Definitely. Just kill a couple people. Yeah, and I mean, it's dream death, but they still die in real life. So I mean, you're responsible for it. I don't know. It's like the whole Motley Crew thing. It doesn't matter who's driving the car and who did the heroin a different story well and what's interesting about when you go into the dream the the people with the, the psychic powers they almost can control the dream themselves they can become anything that they want to become they like kind of merge with the actual Snake idea Man. of the dreams so that's what kind of makes the idea so kind of frightening because this is where we talk about fucking snake man there's a kid that uh, they're trying I gotta to interrupt you just because uh to, to watch this movie we can tell the audience if you search on YouTube, you can find a very shoddy version of it. And I sat down and I watched the very old shoddy version of it. And the second Snake Man came on screen, it was like, nope, I got to go pay two ninety nine on Amazon. I need to see <laughs> a little bit more clarity to Snake Man because it's maybe the coolest thing I've seen all year. It, it, Snake Man's pretty fucking impressive. It's a kid who keeps having these nightmares of Snake Man coming after him. And Dennis Quaid like, vows to help him. So he goes into his dream and he gets attacked by Snake Man. Um, but Snake Man is a recurring theme throughout the film because it becomes this kind of a totem of the ultimate fear. So if you really want to fuck somebody up, turn yourself into Snake Man. But who wouldn't? Um, I mean, it's a good idea. <laughs> it's just kind of like a really cool design. It's a cobra with arms and legs, for Christ's sakes. You've got that really cool scene with um, Alex, uh, Dennis Quaid, and the kid going down that really awesome staircase. But right when uh, David Patrick Kelly comes from Snake Man back to like half Snake Man, and he's got that kind of creepy Tales from the Crypt makeup on, and he's like, oh, daddy, I'm sorry. That's fucking awesome. Just weird Snake David Kelly. I love it. 
But it's also like a very poignant scene because this guy you've hated the entire movie, you do feel a little bit of sympathy for at that point that he is just kind of this person who's been manipulated and into being this giant fucking prick of a character. And he is just basically a little kid, a little sorry kid who made a lot of mistakes in his life. Well, I think that's even kind of shown when he's introduced, because at first it's very deceptive. He seems almost like he's going to be a a Bill Paxton-esque character, maybe more of a, a jokester, because he comes in and he's screwing around with Dennis Quaid's saxophone. Which is a meaningless plot point, but Dennis Quaid plays a mean saxophone. <laughs> it was the '80s; everybody played sax. Yeah, he he plays a mean saxophone. And prior to becoming a psychic, just to mention it, every plot description of the movie says he goes to the track and was a womanizer. So I guess the character is just kind of an all-around dildo. But they introduce David Patrick Kelly so funnily that he's just kind of goofing off and he's trying on Dennis Quaid's clothes, and you can tell he's really cocky, but it's it's a really childlike nature to things, which again is just the testament to the actor. I mean, I know most people recognize him from the Warriors, but really great character actor. If I, it's one of those things that if I see his name in the credits of anything, I'll sit down and at least watch to see his uh, his points of the movie because I just think he's great at pretty much everything he does. Seems like a nice guy that David Patrick Kelly. He's kind of criminally underused, too. I mean, he had a pretty big career in the 80s, a little bit through the early 90s, and then he just kind of disappeared and show up randomly and stuff. But he's just a very thoughtful actor. He um, he doesn't pull any punches. He actually like he gets involved in the character and he got involved in this character very well because it's just he gives what could essentially be a mustache twirling asshole villain and gives him a great amount of depth. Well, you know, he um, really does that consistently because even in The Crow, I, I feel uh, T-Bird is one of the more emotional characters that when it comes to his triumphant, uh, fiery death, literally, you know, he starts quoting the Blake poetry and there it seems to be some absolute terror in him. And it's just, he gets into the character. He really is that that guy. It's not David Patrick Kelly anymore. It's a performance to see. That, that should just be a whole homework lesson for the audience. Go to IMDb and watch a David Patrick Kelly movie at night. Have fun with that. <laughs> and he's in actually a lot of great stuff over the years. Um, one of the things that really does work within this movie, because you know we get into several different dreams, like these people entering into dreams, and all the dreams have a distinct look and feel to them. They all are different. Like the child's nightmare is kind of like a very childish nightmare. Everything is like Tim Burton designed and skewed. There's a giant staircase to a basement. They have to climb down and it's very crooked. Um, looks like something out of Beetlejuice, but Kate Capshaw's dream is almost like, um, a scene from somewhere in time or a picnic at hanging rock. So like it's, it's all very, uh, Vaseline cans. Yeah. I felt the kids, uh, whole thing really reminded me of house. Yeah, I mean, it's it's that vibe, that kind of um, kind of kitty horror, but Beetlejuice-ish. Yeah, I mean, that was apt with yeah. Tim Burton. Yeah, I felt that Kate Capshaw's also, too, had that, you know, kind of technicolor, late 50s Western vibe to it, that almost romantic, uh, strong woman, you know, Audrey Hepburn goes out to the Wild West vibe that she was looking for. You know, the strong man character, which, again, that seems kind of rapey because he infiltrates her dream specifically for uh, being nasty. But she says it's all OK. It's I mean, uh, it's it was fine. I enjoyed it. It's good. 
It's like Revenge of the Nerds. That rape, I'm okay with. Well, I think what's interesting is none of the characters, uh, oddly except the president, seem really redeemable that everyone at at their own rate is using everyone. That Max von Sydow's character even kind of admits, like, yeah, I lied to you about it being a government thing, but I still really wanted to use you for this because he's one of the hopeful characters that is attempting to use He just wants the this. research. He doesn't care what, like... Sure, they're going to use this as a weapon, but at the end of the day, I need to advance science. That's where I'm at always, is trying to advance the science of this. If I have to use unscrupulous means to get there, I, that's what I'll do. Well, he isn't aware of the nefarious nature of Bob Blair until the president comes. He truly thinks that this is research that is going on to help people, because his most of his experiments have been to cure awful nightmares to cure people of trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. And he's all basically sorts of... Patrick McGowan in Scanners. It's almost the exact same character. I mean, he's he's probably the biggest redeemable character, but eventually the president, who is haunted by these nightmares I mentioned earlier, is brought into the clinic where uh, Christopher Plummer's character is going to have him assassinated. And Novotny, Max von Sydow's character, uh, catches on to this because he puts him in a certain wing of the hospital and realizes after Plummer wants to move him that Something's not right here, that this isn't okay. And you never see what happens to him, but eventually it's revealed that he becomes, he falls victim to uh, to, to Bob Blair. And uh, he's so, you're, you're getting, a, uh, this guy is so powerful that he can get the president killed, that he can't really be touched. And you're even kind of let known at some point that presidents change, but Bob Blair never really leaves his hand. So he's sunk so much time into what other people thought was meaningless dream research truly because he's realized that it can be the greatest weapon of all for not just the United States but whatever his means are whatever puts him well he's more trying power. to become the president at a certain point that's I mean I think I, he wants to be God kind of I mean I yeah. think he really wants to control life you know I mean even to like a Pol Pot example for a really weird reference how you know he would pull people into the killing fields that wore glasses because wearing glasses was a sign of pseudo intelligence or you know it's it's thought people wear glasses so they're smarter or they're a nerd or whatever and that got you shot in cambodia many many years ago i think that's kind of the idea with bob blair that once he can control everything and infiltrate whatever it can become his perfect society and he runs the world like it's really nefarious he's a bad guy and an interesting bit of trivia for this movie is i'm not sure if it was the absolute first but it was one of the first uh PG-13 movies ever. It was the second, um, but I don't remember what the first was anymore. Yeah, I couldn't remember. It's Red it's Dawn, this... motherfucker. It's Red Dawn was the first one, and then Dreamscape. Dreamscape, yes. Um, so it, it does have, a, like, in today's society, yeah, it's not that hardcore, but for 1984, it felt pretty hardcore watching this movie, because it does have some sex. It does have a significant amount of violence in it. I think it has a little bit of nudity because he does go into that weird uh, the bald dude's dream who's afraid somebody's having sex with his wife and he's trying to cure that dude of his insecurities about his marriage and that's like a weird, uh, almost like a uh, Amazing Stories episode, that dream. It's uh, very kooky. I think if I remember my IMDB facts I read on my phone about an hour before we started recording this that there was a sex scene that was going to be filmed with Kate, or the sex scene with Kate Capshaw was a little bit more uh, steamy, and that ended up being cut down to get this release. So I think there might have been a little titty there, and it's gone. It really didn't need it, though, and this will be a bold statement since we haven't said what the next movie is. I like this more than the next movie, and it's not just because Snake Man. It just has a little bit more to offer, and substance-wise, it, it asked some questions. 
And again, I've made some jokes about Alex, but really at the end of the movie, you're left really questioned with that of, was my leading man a fucking murderer? Uh, yeah, it kind of looks like it. But was he a, a murderer for the better of humankind? Like that question, if you could kill Hitler, would you go back in time or whatever? Blah, 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 blah. But it's just weird to have a leading man at this time period and kind of uh, a Brat Pack era of, which is weird, I'll probably reference that later, era of movies to be just kind of a dick, but he's a hero dick. It all works out. Everything ends up working out in the end, and it's got a, a nice little wrapping and bow on it. It just had a little bit more thought. Everything just had a little bit more thought to it. Yeah, Ba-da-bum. and like as far as it being from 1984 and being a child of the A's and ringing this to the store, it had an amazing... I'm not 100% positive about this fact, but I'm pretty sure Drew Struzan did the poster, and it's a very Indiana Jones-inspired poster, so that's what caught my eye um, immediately when I rented this. And we rented it so many times over like a, probably a two- or three-year period. I don't know why we found it so exciting, but I still to this day love this movie. I can put it on at any point and just... It's not even a nostalgia thing. I think it's just an incredibly well-made film. And it's not for the sake of like, wow, it's just so artistically done. No, it's just, it's entertaining. The acting is all good. It's just solid all around. And I just, I think it's a crime that this is overlooked over the years. And it really is open for remake, but I guess just not enough people know about it. It's just not a hot enough property, but you could do so many things with this, this concept and take it to so many different places. And it's just weird that no one has ever thought about coming back to it. I know Shout Factory has put it out on a Blu-ray, so who knows who owns the rights and what happens to these things. It it would be an interesting concept to see it remade, but the movie we're going to talk about after this was recently remade, and it just gets to a point of why. Uh, I, I watched the Jacob's Ladder remake a few weeks ago, and it's fine. It's it was a little spooky. It holds. I wouldn't say any candle to Jacob's Ladder. It it kind of got the point and followed through. But essentially, it I don't understand why it was even an investment. I don't understand what its purpose was. Well, Jacob's Ladder is a movie that people have pointed out over the years of like, oh, it's you'll never guess the ending. First of all. That ending has been done to death at this point. Jacob's Ladder was just the original film to do that as an ending. And some people get it. Some people I don't know. This might be a a shooting myself in the foot statement, but Jacob's Ladder is kind of just like the whole Citizen Kane thing, though. I mean, like, it's the ending's not that far off. No, the ending is almost like it's almost nothing to me. But it's a lot of people say you'll just never see it coming. And to me, it's like the ending is almost irrelevant. Because getting to the ending in Jacob's Ladder is what's really important. It's Tim Robbins' performance. It's Adrian Lyons' direction and making um, everything feel so like destitute and hopeless. The entire movie just feels completely hopeless until you're given that little like ray of light right at the end, and it uplifts you um, with this kind of this horrible depressing story you've been watching the entire time and that's what really works about jacob's ladder it's not this which i haven't seen the remake i know what the remake is about i know directions it goes in and it just seems like they missed the point and just got yeah, the totally. ending well, the, the ending too uh, strongly missed the point and it th- that was the whole overall experience that i was left with after you know finally seeing it, it was like well why you know, and <clears throat> I fucking bring this up all the time, this Dario Argento quote that 
you're going to remake a movie and make it exactly like it was, you really just kind of wasted everyone's time here. And to an extent, I get that. Like, the Omen remake is always a whipping boy. It's really well done, and the performances are, are fun. It's great. It's the exact same thing. And to this extent, you changed it M. Night Shyamalan style and gave it a little bit of a polish, but essentially you've done nothing but taken the title of Just something else. Just watch the original. I mean, it's still there. It's You can still find it on Prime, I think. That's what I mean with Dreamscape of how remakes are handled and essentially what's done with them now is, sure, it might be called Dreamscape, and maybe even Dennis Quaid will appear as an unrelated character at some point in it, but it, I don't know. I the mean, special I, effects do need a little updating. In Dreamscape, the special effects are a little funky. The The matte lines are so severe in one of the scenes. I but, love uh, the dream where he's on the roof and the big piece of metal hits them and he falls. And it's just this ridiculous, like, it's a dream because the clowns are moving fast and everything's really spun. <laughs> and uh, it's just the whole concept of the movie and what you're getting into is kind of childlike. It's got... Uh, a teenage boy feel to it, an adolescent feel to it, but it's, I don't know, much more fulfilling by the end of it. I don't, uh, I'm rambling. Dreamscape, it's a good, good ride. Check it out. Pretty good. Uh, give it some stars and thumbs up and all that stuff. We're pairing Dreamscape not with Jacob's Ladder. <laughs> We're no. pairing it with a film that, as Hank brought up, that was remade recently, and that movie is. Joel Schumacher's Flatliners. I think these two movies are kindred spirits. They have different plots, but they feel incredibly similar and with style and tone and also with just kind of the nature of um, the subconscious and how the subconscious affects our everyday lives. Um, and that's what primarily Flatliners is about. It does, I mean, Joel Schumacher was a fucking king in the late 80s and early 90s of creating style. The style of Flatliners is pretty fucking amazing. The The color palette he uses is beautiful. Um, the, his choice of actors seems to work out in this film uh, really well. The story, though, after going back recently and rewatching it, is not great. Nope. It's kind of sloppy. The entire movie is a little bit sloppy, and if you a little bit. possibly live with or are married to a medical professional and you watch this film with them, they will sit there and go, this is nothing like real life. This is not how when somebody is flatlining, you bring them back. You do CPR. You never shock them. Shocking is only for an irregular heartbeat. What the fuck are you doing? You're killing this man. Well, too, that's one thing. But the most believable aspect is that all of them are 26 years old. That's really <laughs> where my big gripe comes into place. I wish we had done this episode before Joel Schumacher died. I will agree with you uh, on his, on the accolades. He was a fucking master him. in like, from like 86 to I'd say like 95, he had a really good run there. I'll give you that, and I'll definitely use terms like pop and glam to describe his style, but overall for me, especially going back and watching Flatliners, um, I, I think a lot of his work, I hate this term, it's just kind of soulless. It's just very good. It's empty. Yeah. I will say it right now. It's fucking empty. It's empty of I don't want to insult him, but that's kind of, you know, it, it's just very there. It's kind of like a Madonna video. It looks cool, yeah. and it's very flashy, and it's it's a Madonna video. What fucking decade am I living in? Still, you get the gist of what I mean. It, it has well, a I very mean, nice... Like, people the like Lost... Schumacher are what brought directors like David uh, Fincher to the forefront. Yeah. It's, it's like that 80s style. I mean, the Lost Boys looks great, but for all intents and purposes, it has so little really to offer at the end of the day, and it ends almost like a fucking Leave it to Beaver episode, and that's kind of where I'm at with Flatliners, that you're presented with 
a lot of really deep ideas and you've got visually i think this is maybe one of my favorite joel schumacher movies just because it was all filmed on sets and the attention to detail he he provided like the big college scene when they're they're walking through the halls all of that was on a sound studio and there's this really unique representation of these like holy icons and angels that are all like hoisted and posted above of uh, all the characters almost everywhere where they go when they're mm -hmm. on that facility and even when they're doing the experiments on each other there are these gorgeous statues that are just almost like a heavenly representation of uh, you know not so much like uh, like moving to the ether and moving to the unknown but that there is something else and that it's not like a Judaic stance or well, there's a Christian... something always watching us because that's essentially yeah. what the plot is that you've made mistakes in your life and those mistakes have haunted you and they've haunted your subconscious. And there is, if there is some sort of afterlife, you will have to answer for these things that you've done and you can possibly write these, uh, these transgressions through your uh, behavior of living. If you've had these near death experiences, like if, but at the end of the day, though, like, what does Kevin Bacon do? He was like an asshole and kind of racist to a little girl when he was a little kid. And then he goes and apologizes and everything's OK. He's not being tortured by um her, like her vision, this vision he has of her. That's where I think a lot of the problems are with it, that even Billy Baldwin, he doesn't really get his comeuppance. But there's just two. All... His girlfriend breaks up with him. That's how he gets his comeuppance. Things are just treated too lightly. Like it, it is inferred that more than likely Kevin Bacon's character was a, a racist or was, I mean, they just made fun of her because she was ugly. I mean, you didn't really give us any substance or ever anything. And we're supposed to not necessarily dislike these characters, but what you're suggesting is that when they die, I mean, we haven't really talked about what Flatliners is about. These medical students these 26-year-old medical students played by Kiefer fucking Sutherland, Oliver Platt, Kevin Bacon, and Julia Roberts in their early 30s. Billy Baldwin. Oh, yeah, Billy Baldwin, one of the better Baldwins. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a he's big... He's not an asshole. Yeah, he's all right. He's a nice guy. He's he's Billy Baldwin, America's sweetheart. But, well, that is my... America's second sweetheart, because we know it's truly me. Um, they have... Uh, Kiefer Sutherland's character has realized or come up with this idea. He didn't realize anything. He came up with an idea that you can die and you can come back, and what they want to do is investigate to see if there's life after death. Long story short, everybody comes back, but something from their past has come back with them. And it's just no, nothing's handled correctly. Like, uh, Billy is a fucking pervert, and... He uses women and films them against their will for his private collection as an animalistic thing to get out of his system before he marries uh, his fiance. She eventually finds the tapes, and that's he gets dumped. Wah, poor Billy. Uh, but still, yeah, he fucking now died. Yeah, transgressions are all forgiven. He doesn't apologize to any of the women he uh, recorded without their consent. He did like I mean, just well, you, your girlfriend broke up with you. It's all good now. Kiefer Sutherland, as a child, murdered a little boy. And yeah. he just, does he even pay for it? They just bring him back. He I smiles mean, at him. Like, he he dies in the dream, but unlike Dreamscape, you don't die in real life. And I guess that's enough for this kid who lost his life at, like, eight years old. I went to the boys' school. I had to pay. It sucked. Like, uh, no, you, you know murdered what someone. Like? See, you fell out of the tree this time. All's forgiven. The actual ending to this movie shouldn't have been some nice fucking classical music playing and them all congratulating each other. He should have died. 
like Kiefer Sutherland's character needed to die and that needed to be the overall ending where all of them realized like Kevin Bacon yells at one point, well, I'm sorry, God, we fucked up with your territory. You know, isn't this enough? And he yells some angry, angsty, 20 something year old. I listen to the cure lyrics. I mean, that's not even appropriate with his character because he does have some fucking like Motley crew ass blown out hair in this movie. So I don't know. He weird i'm getting completely off subject but they toy with all these ideas about god and tempting fate having to go back and fix things but the only one that truly i guess kind of fixes things is julia roberts where you find out that her father was a vietnam veteran and he was on dope and i guess she sees him shooting dope and it makes him run down the stairs and shoot himself which i don't think he he could have if he just pushed a big fat fucking rail of heroin into his fucking veins he just like you know runs down the stairs and I mean he's a little like tipsy looking and then shoots himself but she has a she goes I mean she's not even really haunted so again like my ramble here connects us back to where we were because her segment doesn't even fucking matter that she realizes subconsciously I guess her dad was embarrassed or thought he wasn't good enough and shoots himself but she apologizes to his ghost I don't know if they're ghosts she forgives him for killing her himself basically and that that fixes all of her problems. It's okay. You shot yourself, dad. I understand you didn't do it on purpose and blah, blah, blah. So it just, it doesn't seem like anybody really gets like forgiven in a correct way. They all just kind of seem like it's okay. We're white. Well, somehow Kiefer Sutherland's ghost can physically harm him and beat the shit out of him. And that's just never like explained. Like, okay. So they're real. Are there's some sort of entity that is crossed back with them like it, it doesn't meet none of this needed to be really expounded upon or explained but even just the slightest reference that they were like actual things or figments of the imagination or it was a representation of i don't know god or karma or more than just a bunch of white people with really nice hair uh i don't know like the only real ending story is kevin bacon goes and tells this woman he is very sorry for being a dick and she cries and it's kind of like well that's nice that that okay that's cool i guess because everyone's been picked on well i guess not everyone's been picked on but fuck it you get the gist like okay that went well and then Kiefer gets his ass beat by a child ghost and they i guess that shows it because he's doing it to himself when that happens with the ice pick in the back of kevin bacon's truck so maybe the ghost i don't fucking know why am i (laughs) even thinking i'm asking the guy that put nipples on the bat suit i don't think put this much thought into it either the story is not very well done it's loose and i don't think they answered a lot of the ideas or concepts that they were going with but I think the thing that does save this movie is Joel Schumacher. I think his direction saves it. I think his choice of actors saves it. It's um, incredibly emotional at times. I mean, it's not one of those films where, like, I'm really into these characters and I feel it, but you do feel the darkness surrounding all of them. I I do like the color palette he uses. I do like um, the set design. Like, um, when they do one of the experiments of, you know, killing one of their friends— and it's Halloween, and it's like slow motion, and people are having a Halloween party on the steps of the uh, the old medical building. They're killing each other in the library, or where the fuck they are. I like when the kids um, accidentally hit the window, and the uh, the window gets you know knocked open, and somebody has to run across the floor. One thing that's disappointing is Oliver Platt's in this movie, and he didn't get to have a whole segment. He didn't get to die and come back. So we he doesn't even get to get on the poster because he's not sexy. They couldn't have somebody, I guess, with a better cup size than Julia Roberts taking their shirt off. <laughs> but I think Joel Schumacher saves what is 
kind of a very base plot idea and saves it with what he was great at at the time, which is like just tone and really playing up that tone and really playing it's up really glamorous. You know, the the wet streets, the uh, the uh, the smoke coming out of the manhole covers, that sort of thing, and it really feels like it's an excellent movie, even though it isn't very good. <laughs> I think that's what Joel Schumacher was best at was taking what well, was kind of a mediocre idea, like the Lost Boys, is kind of a mediocre idea for a movie. Had teen vampires, there you go, and changing it into something that hits you in an emotional level and hitting you on an emotional level from like an art perspective. It's not so much the characters or the dialogue they're delivering. It's his choice of actors. It's the way he uh, uses filters. It's the way he uses lighting. And it makes it feel like it's a more emotional experience than it actually ever was. It's a, like a great side of hand by Joel Schumacher. I mean, he, a lot of people talk shit about Joel Schumacher. He's not one of my favorite directors. Yes, he ruined Batman. I hated his Batman movies, but I didn't particularly like Christopher Nolan's Batman movies either. So go suck a dick. But don't even Joel particularly Schumacher, like Batman. Much like Steven Spielberg had some really great movies mixed in with a bunch of shit. Because if you look at Spielberg's career, he's one of the greatest directors of all time. But he's also made like 70 movies, and about like 40 of those are shit. He's made some great ones, but he's also... Have you seen fucking Minority Report? It's terrible. Oh, come on. Um, I love Minority Report. Player One? God fucking awful. I enjoy Minority Report, but I will say, in my defense, it is for nostalgic reasons, and I just like Max von Sydow. But on the subject of Joel Schumacher, one thing I, I really give him credit for is uh, something I've been really rambling about on this program is... A motion picture being a picture, and what Joel Schumacher really excelled at is showing you and presenting you a picture that even The Lost Boys is something that you could watch without the sound on, which sucks because the soundtrack is really, really great, but still you can follow absolutely everything, and that's because of his, his just heavy hand of visuals and what he is uh, able to show you just with his, his, like you mentioned, sleight of hand. I mean, he truly is a magician, but... He lights a certain way that's just uh, mesmerizing and like using the Lost Boys and Flatliners. Both of these films have a very gothic approach, like gothic architecture and gothic art in general. Not so much like Bosch, but it's it's very heaven and hell and it's very like religious and not so much like a certain feeling, but like Catholic architecture. It's just got a very decadent flow to it. And so you're able to fall into his world very easily and you're very... You're, you miss a lot of the plot points and you're enchanted by what he's able to show you on the screen to where it really doesn't matter how senseless all of these stories were. I mean, again, it's just a bunch of night, uh, white people with nice hair at the end of the day, but it doesn't matter because he showed you a really nice uh, format of doing so. He turned this motion picture into a picture that, you know, you could visualize. Well, okay, like, I'll even blow Schumacher on a movie that a lot of people say is self-satisfying nonsense. And that movie is St. Elmo's Fire, which it is a bunch of overprivileged white suburbanite motherfuckers bitching about not getting all their dreams to come true. But that movie is emotional as hell. And it's just the way Joel Schumacher has selected his cast, directs his cast, and sets that, that the, the moving image to, to music the way he uh, introduces a sort of kind of mysticism. I know I'm stretching it a little bit here, but it honestly seems 
like mystical at times. It honestly seems like a different world. It's like a magic trick, as I said before, like falling down. I'm not the biggest fan of falling down, but just the fact that he cast Michael Douglas in this role is what makes that movie work and the way he directed the film, because otherwise it's just a, a right-wing douchebag being an asshole. So Schumacher had a way of working with actors and like stacking that up with a visual style that really worked. And that's what I'll miss most about Joel Schumacher. I mean, he did make some crap over the years as well, but I like overall, some of his crap. I say he was a pretty competent fucking film director. I don't disagree with you whatsoever because even Kiefer Sutherland said to Fangoria at one point that all Flatliners is a St. Elmo's fire, but a little bit darker. So, I mean, really, there's not a lot of, of difference here. But even some of Schumacher's crap, what's that movie he did with, I don't know if it's David Borney is, could be that guy confused with him all the time. The weird oh, Nazi is it the one? Blood Creek thing? Yeah, I liked that. It was trash. But, it's not I David Borney is, it's Dominic something. Uh, the guy from Prison Break. Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll never tell the I difference think. between I'm pretty them. sure it's that guy. I'm not a smart man, Jenny. I just know what love is. Yeah, so, Joel, I mean, and that's why I made a joke earlier that it kind of sucks. We did this after Joel Schumacher died, but it's not exactly like either of us have something against him. I mean, it's like this will be a weird fucking comparison, but a lot of people hate Andy Warhol, and a lot of people accuse him of just, you know, he's fucking lazy. All he did was screen printing, blah, blah, blah. And you see just so much hate and so much shit against Joel Schumacher because of his... Just He was very poppy, and that's the best way I can describe him is he kind of was a, a pop artist when it came to how he, like, especially Batman. I mean, uh, like, Batman's kind of like Lichtenstein. It's just very heavy line work. It's very crazy. It's very erratic, but it's, it's I will probably bite these words, but it's kind of beautiful. It's really, I mean, the movies are complete garbage, but it's just the hand he, he used to light and to direct and he, to make these movies. He was able to take a script that was almost nothing that was just kind of really crappy and make it feel important and make it feel like it em like embodied something that and importantly like, give it a style like uplifting in a way i mean he could he could just deliver a style to something and even as lame as the batman movies are they stand out differently than the burton films and it's it's neither here nor there cuz i don't really like any of them that much i'm sorry but there's something unique about even sitting down and watching the, the Joel Schumacher Batman films because it's just it's insane. It, they really are. And you look at how much production went into this and how much money went into this and the costumes like the Mr. Freeze costume is fucking insane. Just the 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 concept behind some of his ideas and what he visually could bring to the screen was really decadent. But but really well, speaking cool. Speaking of Mr. Freeze in Flatliners, the. Uh... The cooling slash heating blanket that is complete and utter bullshit. Yes, they are do have hypothermia blankets that will chill a person down when they need it. They don't glow fucking blue though, and they you can't turn the hypothermia blanket into a warm blanket all of a sudden. But he knew if he coated this with like almost these neon colors, they could give a certain style and a feel to the scene that he was directing. And that's what really works in this film. It, it becomes a major part of the palette of the film is this blue blanket that they're using to, uh, to, to lower the body temperatures of the people. And it really adds kind of an aura to the scene. You had to have some form of visual representation. And that's, that's what works so well when it comes to Joel Schumacher and going back to something like the lost boys just uh, that mall fucking jacket that um, Bill or Ted, uh, why can't I ever remember his name, freaked. 
our, our hero, Alex, Alex Winters. Winter? Yeah, Alex Winters fucking, my, I don't know, my brain is just gone, dude. I mean, I smoke a lot of pot. Um, <clears throat> so Alex Winters' jacket itself almost just tells a story of, of who he is and who these characters are. And, like, you don't need a, a decadent background with how long these vampires have been hunting through Santa Clara. You just get with their ideas and what the costuming is and what they're representing with the movie, what the imagery and what the picture was Joel Schumacher was trying to give you. And it literally was teenage vampires. It doesn't matter that they're obviously all in their mid-20s. Teenage vampires. Just fucking run with it. They're teenage vampires. And you're still And I want them to look hot. And he did. That's, I mean, I've, I've kept repeating the joke. It's just white people with nice hair at the end of the day with this. But truly, I mean, everyone is beautiful. Every single scene of this movie, there's a part, there's twice where Kevin Bacon has to run in after being soaked in the rain. Still beautiful, blown out hair. They all die and come back and just look amazing. You know, Kiefer Sutherland still got his perfect pomade. No, no one comes back awful no one looks like they've died they even get 24 hours to recuperate and it's just really really beautiful people being really beautiful but at the same time you believe it you're not you know questioning it or angry as it's appearing to you on screen you're like man i can't believe they died and came back it's pretty cool that seems intense wasn't that wild and then as the story progresses and you start like especially with billy baldwin he begins seeing on screens everywhere his sex tapes and begins seeing the girls that start using the pickup lines on him and it's just it's none of it's really believable and it just seems almost more like a comedic relief aspect to everything and it almost like makes the fact that he is almost a rapist like light again kind of like with dreamscape it kind of really misses the point that like he's he's a sexual abuser he's not really he shouldn't deserve the power of being a doctor and all this prestige somebody should out him for doing these sort of things but they'll probably all go on to be incredibly famous for all of these experiments and Make millions of dollars and be on Oprah. Maybe. <laughs> and, and tracing Joel Schumacher's career, I mean, the man wrote Car Wash. That's the, probably the most outstanding thing about his career. How the fuck did he write Car Wash? It just seems totally out of character. He had to have had help. I had totally to forget have... that every time you mention it to me. It's like, oh, yeah, he did do Car Wash. Yeah, he wrote the fucking thing. It's so weird. Um, was a kind of a quintessential African American film at the time, written by fucking white ass Joel Schumacher. I guess it's just hard to to bring him up and discuss him without pointing out, you know, just kind of the soulless nature of a lot of his products post, you know, nineteen eighty nine or so. And it's not like they're just product for the nature of being product, but things like Flatliner. By the time you get to the end of it, it's a it's a little annoying. I mean, everyone rejoices and is so happy they've brought Kiefer Sutherland back, but. Truly, to at least make things right at the end of the day, he should have died. Like, I'm not saying it needed to be an eye for an eye or blood for blood, but he fucking killed this kid, and his penance was... But he felt remorse. Yeah, I mean, he felt remorse, and his penance is he beat himself up. So it's kind of like Fight Club. Like, I don't know, both of these movies are... We could have also put Vanilla Sky, I guess, in the mix. I mean, both of these are all into that weird dream nature. I'm not a big Vanilla Sky fan. Not the not. not the Tom Cruise one, the Penelope Cruise. The original one. uh what's the name of that one? I, I said the Penelope Cruise one, but she's in both of them. I always, she's in the original too. Yeah, I, I thought it was just Vanilla Sky. Um, it's in Spanish. I can't remember the name of it at all. Yeah, I I what? don't speak Spanish. Or yeah, or English um, very well. But I mean, I, I will say that I will miss Joel Schumacher. I mean, he hadn't really been working 
that much in the past few years. You know, I didn't even know he was in his 80s. I thought he was in his 60s or so and that, you know, he just had kind of had moved on because that big budget of production was was just wasn't there. But he was uh, he was getting up there in in age. But I'm not a smart man. I've said it before. I think he did a lot of good for studio filmmaking and showed that you could make a, a very interesting product with out having a good script, but that also turned for the worse because that's what most studio films are. I mean, just... he fucking did Drugstore Cowboy, and it was good. What? No, he didn't. That was Gus Van Sant. Never mind. That's Gus Van Sant. Wow, that was way off. <laughs> Sorry, I was watching my own private Idaho the other night, so that's the been on my mind. You're in a Gus Van Sant sort of mood. We're talking about Joel Schumacher here. God damn it. But would you say? though, that Dreamscape and Flatliners do work together as a double feature. I personally think they do. I think they are tonally very similar. They give off kind of the same vibe. I mean, Dreamscape, I would I would probably show first, like we've done here. I would probably show that one first, definitely, just because it's it's a rip-roaring ride and it kind of gets the audience going up and getting exuberant and happy. And then at midnight, when you're showing your second, uh, your B picture, you'd show Flatliners. And that kind of nicely brings down the mood and kind of gets you ready to go to bed. I think one of the greatest things that's asked with both movies is who has the authority to do these things with dreamscapes. It is a total invasion of your privacy to have somebody come into your dreams. I mean, sure. Alex saves the day at the end, but the entire concept is, is truly invasive of, I guess the strange concept of privacy and human rights. And then with Flatliners, you're posed with who truly can play God. And it's not a matter of do you believe in God or if you're an atheist, but it is a control of yeah. beyond and life and death. And that's the both movies are about, though, is humankind being very much control, control freaks, dabbling in quote-unquote God's domain. But do we have the right to do these things? Do we have the right to infect someone's dreams? Do we have the right to... Um, like basically bring people back from the, the brink of death. Um, not in a medical sort of sense, but more of a toying sort of sense. Do you toy with the, with the, like the nature of life? I think the biggest imperfection with these is a lot of the questions that are asked with dreamscape are, are more on a psychological level. And then when you move into flatliners, you're moving not just necessarily into a religious level, but you're opening and posing a lot of questions because some of these concepts that are delved into in the story just really aren't answered because yes, you first have this concept of can you, should you be able to bring people back? But then it brings this whole horror aspect of you have to come or if you've done something wrong, Freddy Krueger style, it's going to come back and haunt you. And it, it, the horror aspect kind of takes away from whatever genuine thought you were going to have and it's because it just goes into overdrive of their being haunted by these ideas but again like Kevin Bacon has a bad trip pretty much on the train and that's it and he goes and says he's sorry to someone and it stops and Billy Baldwin gets dumped and Kiefer Sutherland just gets the shit beat out of him I guess by himself by himself the entire movie none of it really pays off for me and that what leads me back to a statement I said at the beginning of the show that I think Dreamscape is just better that at least oh yeah it's a much better film yeah wrapped together it has at least a, a sensibility to it to where i'm just at at the end of the day with flatliners it's like did nothing really mattered so you guys did a medical miracle and i guess have saved and changed the world with being able to revive and bring people back but you got to have a therapist on deck to 
<laughs> figure out what bad thing well, they I did. Well, I think like I Dreamscape know. is a much more coherent plot and it's a much like tighter package. But I think Flatliners is more visually stunning and a much more um, emotional experience. Whereas like Dreamscape is, again, kind of like a little bit more like an action film or an adventure film. And Flatliners is more about um, deep inner feelings. And Flatliners is also just very poorly written. It's just not a really well-written film. I was very surprised they remade it. And I haven't seen the remake, but from the trailers I saw, it's just like, I don't know if you even understood what you were making. Because one of the, the big keys of Flatliners that works is how kind of dreary and dark that movie is and the color palette they used. And in the remake, it's all very brightly lit. And it was like using a lot of visual effects and stuff. And it's just like, what is this? This has nothing to do with the story you're trying to tell. I've got a weird reference that might put some of this into a little bit of perspective, but Dreamscape feels more like a National Lampoon's movie as to where Flatliners feels more like a, a Shermer, Illinois movie, like The Breakfast Club, like St. Elmo's Fire, a Brat Pack sort of movie. And that's really the vibes that you get with both of them. So uh, like Keeper Sutherland said, Brat Pack's horror style and then National Lampoon's. I'm going to go with the National Lampoon's picture overall for that. Yeah, I would definitely say Dreamscape is a much more enjoyable experience, but I'm not going to sit here and shit on Flatliners after recently rewatching no, it all, and yeah. thinking it's, well, that's just terrible. Cause I just, I remember really liking Flatliners back in the day and watching it again now going, that is not as good as I remember it, but I know what I like about Flatliners and why it resonated with me in like 1990 or 91 when it came out is just, it's the vibe and it's the feel it's the actors. It's the emotion put behind it because the story is just really poorly done. A lot of it, too, is just the style. Like, Kiefer Sutherland always looks really cool, and he wears that long coat and the, the, the black suit throughout the entire movie. And ego is established just through how people dress and their body mannerisms, which, again, is kudos to, to Joel Schumacher as a filmmaker. So you really get enchanted by the style. And, again, it's very rainy and very you know sleek. I think it's Queens. I mean, I think that's the only place with above-ground trains in, uh, in New York. But it just has that cityscape and that almost noir vibe to it and that really kind of motivates you to feel gloomy and it helps you kind of miss a lot of the plot holes and a lot of the uh the bullshit that comes with the story as to where dreamscape ends up just being a little bit more of a, of a light-handed ride and then going back to the flatliners remake i i watched the trailer for it and was just kind of taken aback by how it just kind of looked like prometheus it was just that very stark bright lighting that it's science so everything has to be very cold and it looks and white yeah it's it's very very not even or it's like a lack of any organic it just seemed very bland and very plain and i like ellen page i like the casting Kiefer has returned in it you know maybe one day it'll be seen but i doubt it'll be anything you know remarkable and that's kind of like why i brought up the jacob's ladder remake i find it just pointless i mean like point break was remade why who 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 are you making these for are you even looking at the target audience? Nobody of like <laughs> my generation is going to go, God, they remade Point Break. Fucking A, great. And nobody who's nope. younger is going to go, yeah, Point Break. What the fuck is that? So you're not even hitting your audience. There's just baffling concepts when it comes to like the Omen remake was at least centered around 666 as a date. Like they did something that they knew uh, would monotonize and they took a chance and it worked to an extent. But some of these are just ridiculous as to 
I like Child's Play. We've talked about this before when you saw it, and I recently watched the Child's Play remake. I didn't hate it, I, I, and I like. I'm a. I wouldn't say a, a about half a good movie. I'd say. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to claim that I'm a really big Child's Play fan, but I do really, really enjoy the series, and it just it lost me. I ended up goofing off on my phone and playing games for a lot of it, and it you know the design was weird. I it's not necessarily. It really bad. felt like the the weird thing about it is I think the first half of it's really good. I think it has yeah. kind of a cheeky sense of humor at times, like and some bold, weird violence and some weird it kind of like, final me. destination murder scenes in it. They're like, why is this going on? Like th- this is kind of weird. But then towards the end, it just gets really tiring and it feels like they just kind of okay, we gotta end this. Let's go. Let's go. Okay, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, and it's over. It's well, like, it kind of started to depress me because you get this angle that, you know, all he wants to do is protect Andy, and he's trying to do this to be his best friend, and it's like, whoa, this is not the direction we need to take this into. The little fucker was trying to murder everybody and destroy his entire life, so you've got this really, like, <laughs> Blade Runner feeling to it because you're like, oh, I feel bad for him. It's like Roy Batty all of a sudden, and these were not the emotions I went into the Child's Play remake expecting to have. So, it's not like it was a not it wasn't a shitty experience i'm i'm interested in it but i don't know just while we well, have about, like the Dewar, ending where they go to the store it. and everything bluetooth is going crazy and all the dolls are going crazy i'm like oh we're getting ready to have some kind of fucking nutso you know bloodbath scene it's just kind of wrapped up in about three and a half minutes it's like all and right you kill one of the only redeemable characters you killed the chris sarandon how could you kill black chris sarandon that was completely uncalled for i'm sorry i don't know the actor's name i gotta call him black chris sarandon forevermore <laughs> yeah again it, I, it's not a bad remake it's just kind of seemed somewhat pointless and you've probably alienated most of the fan base with it but now because the fan base is all going to watch this new sci-fi channel series. Well, it's two networks. It's 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 not just sci-fi. But, you know, it's one of those things that I think fans don't want to hear. And maybe I'm the Darcy the Male Girl of Death by DVD now. But it's I'm not going to say the fucking Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake is good, nor is the last Because that's film. just asinine. I'm yeah. sorry, Darcy. No, that's, that's not true. On. That's wrong. It's just wrong. On and, so many levels, it's wrong. And that is an insult at, 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 to Texas. Toby Hooper, it's an insult to a lot. And it's complete. It's, it's so insulting, I forgot what my original point is. Um, uh, Just remakes in general. It's not like everything is absolute trash but there's been a few here and there like I'll, i i like throwing in the omen remake because i did enjoy it last cells on the left was absolutely atrocious but the crazies that was that was okay that was handled was really pretty good. well i enjoyed it i think it was comparable to the original with the budget that they were given and the idea from george romero i think they really grasped a lot of those ideas and it was treated and handled very well and it doesn't insult the original intellectual material at all, but like the Last House on the Left remake, I think is an absolute insult to even fucking Ingmar Bergman. Like that goes back to Max von Sydow. You're insulting so many people with that goddamn movie. It's a blight upon society. Uh, why don't we put his head in the microwave? Fuck that what? shit. What the fuck are I? What? I hate that idea more than Heineken. It's just fucking redundant, and it's not. Like, uh, oh, man, The Last House on Left is so great because I admittedly am not a giant Wes Craven fan. Uh, I recently sat down and watched the Criterion cut of Last House on the Left, which is that, like, director's cut that came out from MGM in the, the mid-2000s that I actually think Roy Frumkis put together and, and did all the, the, the background stuff. And all the gore scenes, I think, were restored, a lot of stuff that had been left out of the previous cuts. 
and it's effective and it's great and it it really has emotional value and you sit and you try and think of anything that is registered or brought forward in the remake outside of a, a kind of nifty 2000 soundtrack and hey it's that guy from breaking bad the issue with a lot of remakes is you miss the complete point of the story and like the thing which is a, a very dated reference for remakes it at least captured the idea of what the thing from another world was. It didn't just completely dismiss it. The Fly also. I mean, it even kept and regarded one of the greatest aspects of the story when Vincent Price becomes melded well, with The Fly. You still have all of these these things that are added into it. Well, it's not Vincent Price melded with The Fly. You misspoke on that one, sir. Um, Whomever got The Fly head. It's... <sighs> The key to a remake is taking a pre-existing concept and expounding upon that concept. That's why I think Dreamscape would work, because you can add a budget and you can add some better effects, and you can really take it in some new and interesting places. The problem with a lot of more modern remakes is they just got nowhere to take it. Like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the best way to remake that is strip it the fuck down. Give them no budget and like get them to like make a dirty fucking film giving them millions of dollars and making it look like a music video is contrary to what the point of what makes that film great let's see i have to interject and disagree a little bit because i think the biggest problem with the texas chainsaw massacre remakes is that they have gone far too deep into the what ifs and who they are and they're answering questions to the story that is, is no one cares about who leatherface is trust me like the thing that made it terrifying was the absolute faceless nature of what the family represented. I mean, even Toby Hooper's sequel, allowing you to know some of their names and the Sawyer family and adding to the mythos of it was too much. It took away and stripped some of just the, the brutal, genuine fear. The, as we've talked and referenced a lot, the, you know, ballet nature of things, the organic kind of scary fucking opera nature of how it can just rattle from absolutely nothing and then explode at the end in this triumphant Wagner-esque, you know, explosion of loud noises. And that's how in the movie just ends with screaming and the remake has this dumb little photo op of the real face and the last time he was ever seen. And, hell, here's a noise you've heard before, so it's definitely Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It doesn't even capture the mood. You don't even feel... Like you're in Texas. Like that's one of the things that's amazing about the original film is you could watch it in December and it still feels hot. You can still feel just like you're sweating as you see what like Joel Schumacher you should does bring that up. capture uh, the actual essence of the motion picture. What is one of the colors they use a lot in that remake? Blue. Why is the color blue in a Texas Chainsaw Massacre film It's like at that all? David Fincher washed out kind of blue-green seafoam looking color, that weird 2000s, everything's got to be shot with this greasy Fincher lens. I mean, that, that Fight Club lighting. Fucking blue. It, doesn't, it only needs, like, it needs to be blown the fuck out. You don't know, need really any lighting. You don't need reds. You don't need all, like, oranges. You need natural That's my lighting. That's scene. Uh, my favorite scene of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the biggest probable use of blue uh, Toby used in it is when they finally stop to let him take a piss. And it's just that awesome shot of the van sitting on this dead highway. And you can see the blown out sky, almost the bend of the earth. Everything is just almost perfect and picturesque. And it's like this Hitchcockian shot of everything stopping to let you know that doom is on the way and this opened, beautiful, empty nature. And then as they lose him down the hill you've got the laurel and hardy little bit of comedy aspect that breaks thing up and then they move directly into the doom the remake has this 
I don't know. It's the '70s, so we got to do Vietnam. Everything's Vietnam. Blah 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 blah. And the irrelevant to the plot. Overtone of sex appeal with Jessica Biel. It just none of it really matters. It's very flat. I mean, Joel Schumacher probably could have handled the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and made it a lot more flattering, just with better casting. I don't care about anyone. And then you've got the sequel to the prequel of the remake that again you just focus on all the wrong aspects. Just nothing. I don't care about the backstory, and I don't think that's what makes anything frightening. But, I mean, we can do a whole expose on Toby Hooper and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre another day and and fill a couple hours with that. So, I guess that's it. Flatliners and Dreamscape. We both, I think we both like them. I don't think we really had too much negative to say. No, I like... I like Flatliners for completely different reasons than I like Dreamscape. And mostly I think I like Flatliners because it is a Joel Schumacher film. It's a, a kind of a Joel Schumacher classic. But again, terrible script. So that'll do it for this episode. The ashtray is full. The bottle is empty. Join us next week as we, I don't know, probably cut with the bottle is empty part. Good night. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem. Después de 150 años de historia en ING decidimos replantearnos nuestra forma de hacer banca para adaptarnos a los nuevos tiempos, reinventarnos, de desaparecer de para crear un nuevo sistema I'm Linnea. And I like Death by DVD. It's a statement.